Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, tips and tricks to support your most valuable relationships. We will discuss the top reasons valuable clients leave their advisors. That's with our guest, Brett Van Bortel, Director of Consulting Services in Invesco Consulting. Welcome to the Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We are recording this after the first week of October, and there is a lot of talk out there about market lows possibly hitting market bottom, although it's still very volatile. How has the fourth quarter started off and what does that indicate for the remainder of the year? Well, Robin, it is early in the fourth quarter. The market hasn't exactly taken off. We are still dealing with the big issues we've been dealing with all year. It's has inflation peaked, you know, the Federal Reserve is aggressively raising interest rates. You know, we're still dealing with those problems. Now that said, the fourth quarter, particularly in midterm election years, Usually the fourth quarter is pretty strong. So I think that at least in terms of the short term, I think investors should be encouraged. You know, investor sentiment on that point actually is also really negative. And that tends to lead to above average returns over the next one month, three months, six months. So anyway, as for the fourth quarter outlook, I guess it's more likely to be better than not. We can only hope. Yeah. All right, let's bring in our guest. Brett Van Bordel is Director of Consulting Services at Invesco Consulting in Winfield, Illinois. Brett, welcome to the weighing machine. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, Brett, our initiation rate, of course, on our podcast is really an important question. And that is, we need a walk-up song. What is that song we can hear as Brett comes up to the microphone for this podcast interview? Well, there's a lot of great choices, but I'm going to go with Sandman, I think, by Metallica. Just got that power beat, got boom in the music, Yeah, gets things going. One of my favorite songs to shoot baskets, too. Love it. I think we have some Metallica on the playlist already, if I remember right. Yep. All right. Well, Brett, you have been in consulting for 25 years, I think it is. Tell us about your background and how you came to this industry. Yeah, great question. So going back to 1997, I was working in advertising as a uh, copywriter and then a creative director. And really the core skill set there is really analogous to what we do in consulting services. And that is to conduct proprietary research, boil it down to its core insights, and then be able to present that in a compelling way. So that skill set translated very well to Invesco Global Consulting and what we do in that space. And back in 1997, I got a call from a guy I'd hired, I don't know, four or five years earlier and said, we're looking for someone to develop what they called non-product programs at that time. Very unspecific moniker, but... Did a little bit of uh, spec work for them. They liked what they saw and it's taken off explosively since that point in time in terms of the number of programs, the number of people under our employee, et cetera. Right. So tell us more about your team and more about the work that you're doing at Invesco. Yeah. So, you know, what we try and do is something that's a little bit different, a little bit more proprietary than what you might see out there for 
a lot of, you know, quote unquote, practice management type programs. We want to come up with things that are relevant, distinctive and deliverable. Those are sort of three boxes that we want to check for any program. So because of that, we do a lot of proprietary research, literally spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year for a quarter century now. That's more or less unheard of in our space, but it's created a a massive body of work that is, I think, been demonstrated to be very effective for advisors applying to all sorts of challenges that they face. And we typically look for widespread challenges so that when we spend and invest that research money, it's going to have a very broad-based application. Yeah. So, Brad, I met you several weeks ago at a conference outside of San Francisco for main management, and you were one of the presenters, and you had a program called the Golden Hour, which I think was the hit of the conference. At least, you know, advisors are taking tons of notes on it. So, tell us about this program called the Golden Hour. What's the story behind the name? Yeah. So, you know, we get that question a lot. It's a little bit, uh, you know, seems a little out there for a financial services related program. But the Golden Hour is basically a medical concept that is used to describe this roughly two-hour treatment window from the onset of uh, symptoms or trauma. If that patient receives treatment inside of two hours, the majority of the time their life can be saved. But you step outside of that window and things don't turn out quite so well. What we saw in our research was something to me that was highly analogous to that medical field golden hour And effectively, what we saw in the research was a ticking time bomb, if you will. Inside the majority of advisors' practices, there was a significant number of top clients, not the little ones that you wouldn't necessarily worry about, that were beginning to look for the exit sign from an advisor's practice. So we wanted to understand what was going on there. And we realized that advisors could salvage those relationships if they were able to apply the right amount of you know, treatment, i.e. communication, and also the right type. We also learned that there's a lot of things this industry does that's effectively wheel spinning. It's taking up their time, their energy, their effort, not really moving the needle at building equity and the relationships with their clients. So if advisors are able to deliver the right amount and the right type of treatment, they can literally cure the risk of those top clients leaving and take it down to 0%. Yeah. So how does the golden hour apply to advisors' business and practice? Well, so what we see with advisors is that uh, getting high net worth clients, that typically their top clients for any advisor, is one of the greatest challenges there is. And there's a lot of programs out there on new client acquisition. I built several myself, but it occurred to us no one was really looking at sort of the other side of the coin of new client acquisition, and that is top client retention. I've coached a lot of advisors through my career where they'll be number one in new client acquisition, but they'll be, uh, you know, maybe quintile five um, at a given regional area or branch in top client retention. So they're sort of on a treadmill running really fast, but not getting anywhere. So if we could solve for that issue, then we really have a solid foundation for the growth of a practice. That's what we were gunning for. Yep. Before we dive into some of the research, Can you tell us why your firm does its own proprietary research instead of just picking up all the studies done in our business? Yeah, well, you know, this isn't everybody, but what I see a lot of out there is a lot of material that is similar to what everyone else has. Everyone's using Google. Everyone's finding, you know, various research tidbits to, you know, support conclusions. 
I use this quote from David Ogle. He's an advertising luminary, goes back to my prior career, but he said something that always stuck with me. He said that most people use research the way a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And what we tried to do is really understand what are the causes of these problems? You know, why would the majority of advisors in our industry not be taking great care of their most profitable clients? It doesn't seem to logically follow. So we sought to understand what the problem was. And when you understand the problem, you can create an effective solution. All right. Well, so one of the findings in your research is that a lot of those top clients, those most profitable clients that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. simply weren't getting the services that they wanted and that they expected. So first talk about how that actually happens. Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at two different groups of people in our research. So first of all, high net worth clients that had left their advisor over the preceding three years. So we could, you know, see their take on things. But then we looked at it from a another vantage point, and that was from the advisor's perspective, opened up 405 advisors' books of business. And what we call uh, essentially binocular research. So you're looking at it from two different, slightly different angles to get greater depth perception on the topic. And effectively, what we found out is that uh, a lot of anchor clients were at serious risk of leaving. So we actually asked those 405 advisors to go through their book of business, ask themselves one very sort of simple, direct binary question. Is this person critical to my financial success? Yes or no. And what we saw on average is there was an inflection point between 43 and 44 with the yeses and the noes. Now, some people had very large books, 300 households, some very small, 60. So that number is going to vary But on average, that's what we saw. And those are the people that really account for the majority of income for those advisors. And they're the ones that they really needed to protect. So when we think about those anchor clients, if I were to ask any advisor, hey, do you do a good job taking care of your best clients? They'd automatically say yes. You know, but, you know, Rusty, you saw that one exercise I did where I asked everybody to write down their number one client. No problem right away. Then I take it to their 15th largest. Now the heads start to look up at me and are kind of like, what are you doing? Who shouldn't know their 15th largest client? Then they'll take it to their 43rd largest client. And of course, at this point, nobody is able to write down their initials of that person. And, and what that does is wake them up to the reality that while I might know my top five and top 10 backwards and forwards, there's a lot of people you know, behind those folks that are really important to my financial success and that I need to pay attention to. So what's really causing those top clients to depart and leave their advisors? Obviously, advisors know that they're valuable. As you said, you know, they may be paying attention to the top 10, but not necessarily below that. But why aren't they getting more attention? Well, we wanted to really dig into that. So we spent some time on it. And the first thing we did is we wanted to see if performance was the reason that they were leaving. And what we found out is that the vast majority of those clients rated performance as superior or good, better than I think 86% off the top of my head, right in that ballpark. And so they weren't leaving because of performance. They were leaving because of something to do with a breakdown in the relationship and communication with their advisor. We dug into, well, you know, how on earth could this be happening? These are the people that pay us the most. They rightly deserve the bulk of our attention. Why aren't they getting that? And we looked at their clients in terms of AUM 
And what we see is this very steep graph for roughly the first 40, 45 clients from the very largest. And then you see it flatten out almost a straight line. And that was a pattern we saw repeated again and again and again amongst advisors' books of business. So a couple of outtakes on this is when I first got into this industry, I'd see these people get up and pontificate on the 80-20 rule. And it all makes perfect sense, but I never saw any data that really backed it up. And what our research shows is that most advisors make the majority of their income off their their top 22.8%, call 23% of their clients. And then 77% are typically much smaller clients. So that's who's paying them the most. And then we looked at, well, how much time are you investing into those relationships to really nurture them and take care of them and grow them. And this time, instead of seeing this sort of organized graph that was really steep and then flattened out all the way to the end, we saw something that just looked helter-skelter. They were spending a lot of time with someone who was really small and very little time with someone who was quite large. With one exception, advisors tended to do a pretty good job with roughly their top 10 clients. Sometimes it was like seven or eight sometimes 12, but you get the idea. Those were how many they could kind of hold in their brain and they're like, I need to take care of these people. So what we saw is that after roughly their top 10, they reverted to a reactive communication plan. So client calls in, I take the call, I solve their problem, I take care of their question, whatever it might be, and then we're done. But what we see here is that when they behave in that way, effectively three quarters 75% of their anchor clients feel neglected. They're paying a lot for that advice, but they don't feel like they're getting the level of attention and care that they feel that they're paying for and deserve. So that was essentially the rub. And, And here's what's really interesting is, as an industry, advisors already know this. So this should not technically be an insight. What our research showed is that 60.6% of them admitted to spending the majority of their time with non-anchor clients, the people that pay them the least, you know, and just imagine if a business decided to make the same strategic move, it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. All right. So we've kind of identified the situation here. So what good news do you have for us on this topic moving forward? Yeah. Well, the first, you know, major piece of good news is that advisors have, you know, their own version of effectively the golden hour. So then the question becomes, well, how much time exactly do they have? And what we found out is that there's a pretty significant amount of time that they have to take action. So what we did is we looked at those clients that had made the decision to upgrade their advisor. So now the clock starts ticking. Now I've got a problem. I want to you know, upgrade my advisor. We began to look at, well, how long did it take them to begin to leave? So at the start, it's logically 0.0. And then we looked at six months and we saw something pretty interesting. That percentage was quite small. It came in at just over 6% had actually found a new advisor. Now, if it stayed way down there, you wouldn't have a need for this program. But what we discovered is that between six and nine months, something very different happens. The clients now had enough time to begin to network with their friends and family that have a higher net worth. They've uh, connected with their estate attorney or their CPA and ask them for a referral to a new potential advisor. So what we see between six and nine months is, you know, what I regard as a killing field. It rises from 6% finding an advisor at six months to 41% 
at nine months. So it literally grows sevenfold in that time frame. So based on that information, you could infer that the advisor's golden hour is, you know, not two hours long, like in the medical field, but six months long before the client starts to think, you know what, I need to take a harder look at this. So that's how much time we have. But then, at least from my perspective, that raises another concern for an advisor that's got, you know, their mind prepared on how to act on this. And that is, you know, do they have a plan that is A, effective, that's going to actually solve this and B, implementable? You know, there's so many solutions sometimes that are so unwieldy and so challenging to implement, given everything that an advisor already has on their plate, that they're effectively a non-starter for most of them. So that's what we're hoping to identify in the golden hour. And that's really sort of the prescription to solve this problem. Yeah, great. All right, so let's get tactical now. And what are some specific actions that advisors can take to, to kind of vaccinate their book from top client loss? Yeah, so it's a great word. I mean, that's effectively what's happening. So what advisors can do is they need to take a close look at the type of communication they're engaging in. So the first and foremost important change is the shift from a reactive communication pattern to a proactive one with all of their anchor clients. The next is to begin to think about, well, what kind of proactive communication is most valuable? And this is really interesting. And I think it's an outtake of sort of the evolution of uh, client relationship management in our industry. You know, 10, 15 years ago, some of the things like the email about the origin of Thanksgiving that you know comes out a week before the holiday, give everybody a warm fuzzy before we take a week break and that kind of thing was impactful. But people started to sniff out the fact that these are emails addressed just to me. But let's be honest, everybody's getting one of these things. So what we found out is that technologically generated communications, mass communications, you know, were increasingly meaningless to the client. And what's also interesting is the opposite was true as well, is that that one-on-one communication was increasingly meaningful to the client. So when they had that interactive communication, they talked with their advisor, their advisor brought up something, you know, from a prior conversation that was really meaningful to the client and, you know, and wanted to check in on how maybe a parent was doing with a, a memory issue, whatever it might be. It told the client that my advisor is really listening, that that's what was fundamentally most important. So what we learned is that this interactive communication, which you need to define really crisply, is what mattered most. And that was this idea of a two-way exchange of information by a conversation, obviously, in person or Zoom or, um, you know, even in an email or a text where compliance allows that. And has your research indicated a way to kind of gauge how much interactive communication is necessary to protect those really valuable relationships? Yeah. I mean, that's the $100,000 question, right? You know, how much does it take, you know, and can I implement it and move the needle? That's one of the most empowering messages from this research and this program is that it is extremely implementable. So if we look at the chance of the client leaving, we broke it into three different groups. So 12 plus interactive communications per year, then seven plus and four plus. Now 12 plus with my best friends, you know, we all got kids in high school and going off to college and busy careers. It's hard to actually stay in touch with your friends, even that much. Your very best friends. 
So that's an awful lot of uh, communication. Unsurprisingly, the risk of them leaving is at 0.0% at the 12 plus level. Now, here's where the surprise comes in. At 7 plus, it was also 0.0. And really, the great news is, is that just four plus interactive communications per year, once a quarter, effectively, with your very best clients, if you make that effort, we can inoculate ourselves from the risk of that top client leaving, literally take it down to zero. So that's the really tremendous news. I'd like to share one additional comment on this, if it's okay. To me, this always begs the question, well, what kind of, you know, hardworking lunatic would do more than four plus? You know, what would be the logic associated with that? And there actually is a bit of um, reason to do more with some. So what we discovered in terms of uh, the ability to get more referrals from our best clients or to get more assets from those best clients is that for referrals, it was a mere 11.9% to add assets. It was 5.9%. So a relatively small number at the four plus level. But if you take that to the uh, seven plus and 12 plus level, we see this geometric progression getting up into the 78% level and the 94% level respectively. So you could infer, and I've had some firms actually lock on to this idea, but I've tried to coax them off of it, is that if you want the best result, apply 12 plus communications per year. But I'm not sure that that is tenable for 40 or 50 anchor clients. So I think the most logical way to read that insight is to look at your maybe three to five very best clients, apply the 12 plus level there. They're going to have the clients we want to replicate. They're going to have more assets that we can get under management. Then the seven plus level for maybe six through 12 or something like that. And then the critical piece is make sure that we're holding at the four plus level for the balance of our anchor clients, be that 33, 43, 53, whatever the person's situation is. Bit of a long answer, so apology on that. (laughs) Okay, so I know your group is big on dial session research on communication between advisors and clients. Did you do any of that work here? And what did it reveal? Yeah, we did. So there was two bodies of research we did. We did some uh, survey work through Princeton Associates, longtime research partner of our organization. But then we coupled that as we've done more and more frequently through the years with dial session research. So we use arguably one of the best conductors of that research in the country. We've had a 15-year exclusive with them. Maslansky and partners, Michael Maslansky, if the name is familiar at all, he actually runs dial sessions at both the Republican and Democratic convention the last cycle, filled a room with 100 people, all of them had a dial, and they'd listen to the speaker at the, you know, either convention and they, you know, loved them or hated them or, you know, were tepid, whatever it might be. And they could break it up by Republicans, Democrats, independents, really insightful process. So what it does is it uncovers the emotional response to language that we all have. You know, if I was to say on this call, I'm a Republican or a Democrat, well, you know, you you like me, you don't like me a little bit because I'm one or the other. But if I was to juice your uh, emotional reaction, I could alienate everybody by adding one word, where if I was to say, you know what, I'm a staunch, you know, Republican, or I'm a staunch Democrat, what have I told you? The word I used is staunch. But what did you hear? Most people are like, you know, this guy's on the fringe, a little bit, you know, over the top, going to be spraying spit when they talk. No, thank you. So people have this um, 
really interesting emotional response to a language that's almost like an electrical charge. And they're able to get to the bottom of what that response is. So what we did is we wanted to figure out what was the most effective format to build equity in relationships with clients. Is it a standard, you know, check and call or, you know, what exactly did it look like? Okay. And I want to talk more about kind of proactive communication that advisors can use to strengthen those relationships. And you talked about, you know, sending a personal email, a text, what other forms can you talk about of proactive communication? Yeah. So what we saw is that if you look at four communications per year, the first one is quite obvious. Well, I'm going to have my annual client review, right? That's sort of the foundation of the house, if you will. And most advisors told us that they were quite comfortable with the approach that they were using there. If they wanted a new look at that, we've got another program called Priceless that shows how to renew and refresh your annual client review. But most advisors said that they were quite comfortable with that process that they had. What advisors really struggled with is what to do in between that 12-month period. So most of them would sort of lob in a, you know, slightly awkward, you know, check and call and update on performance or how you're doing. But it was always sort of ad hoc and by the seat of their pants. And there was a risk of coming off badly if you don't have a plan in place, you know, you plan to fail type of uh, situation. So we wanted to find out what is a really effective way to connect with clients and let them know this is the key. We wanted to let them know that we are thinking about them even when we're out of sight and out of mind. That's what these four communications do on a quarterly basis. So we did a dial session of a standard check and call, you know, hope you're doing well, your performance is, you know, beating the S&P by, you know, 0.75% after fees, you know, thank you and hope you're doing well. That didn't test so good. Reason being is that is effectively a human version of a CNBC.com you know, performance check where you could do that on your own. You don't need the advisor to do that. So that kind of reach out had less and less impact. What did actually connect quite well is what we call this um, relationship equity conversation. And the recipe for that was number one, to do what we call a demonstration of your personal knowledge. So some component of some piece of a conversation thread that you had previously, bringing that up and finding what's going on with that. And that just telegraphs them that, you know, I'm listening. I remember, I care, and that's really important. So people don't feel like this is just a bunch of wheels spinning with my advisor and they're they're asking these perfunctory questions and then they want to get to the point of the call. We want to make sure we avoid that. So that was a really important piece. The next was to uh, monitor for client changes. Now, we've done a lot of research on, you know, various power words and monitor is one of those where we can use that as a way to let them know that we're really always thinking about them, monitoring the markets, of course, but also their personal situation. And we're effectively the intelligent reconciliation engine, bringing those two realms together to see if there's any adjustments that might need to be made to solve for their problems. And then we close out if we uncover something new, some important piece of information that they're concerned about, that they want to get some assistance with, you know, I'm just now learning how to draw down on my son's 529, got a $15,000 reimbursement check today in point of fact. But that's, you know, obviously a major focus on mine given the size of some of those bills. 
and paying those out of pocket and then getting reimbursed for those. So setting expectations for follow-up is a really important one. So that's the recipe is demonstrate personal knowledge, communicate that we're always monitoring this situation, want to find out if there's anything that they're concerned about in particular, and then set expectations for follow-up. That created the basic structure of a relationship equity conversation. All right. So we've talked a lot about some of the findings of your research and how, you know, ways that advisors could really be helped by some of this information. So how do they take the next step then to start implementing this? Do you have tools that they can use that can sort of help guide the way? Yeah, absolutely. So what we initially conceived, and it was, you know, maybe one of our best bad ideas, but we initially thought we would create this little app that they could put on their phone and they could plug in all of their top clients into their phone and see how they were tracking and be high tech and all that. And then we got cold feet because we were developing that right about the time Equifax got hacked, which is, you know, got a much more robust security than our little uh, phone app. And we thought, you know, we could really step in it if we gave this to advisors that their clientele could get hacked. So we actually went 180 degrees in a different direction to completely unhackable pen and paper. And we wanted to create something that achieved two goals. Number one was what I would call a visualization tool. And then the other is a tracking tool. So what it is, is it's like almost a poster-sized worksheet that lets you answer that question of who are my anchor clients? Are they critical to my financial success? Yes or no. And now, you know, if we get 30, 40, 50, even 60 of these, we know that these are the people that are really critical to my financial success. They're my anchor clients. Well, now we want to make sure that we're engaging in a steady drip of uh, interactive, proactive communication with those clients. So there's an opportunity to actually track those. And you can take that worksheet out of a lock file cabinet, look at it on a Monday morning, set your contact plan for the uh, work week based upon who you haven't spoken to in the last three and a half months and use it as a way to methodically reach out to them and then get into the habit of connecting in that way from that point forward. So that's really effective at helping them get a vision for who their entire anchor clientele is. The other piece of collateral we have to help implement is nine different examples of what we call relationship equity conversations. So these are roughly the nine most common financial product and service conversations that advisors will have with their clients. And then it gives them a structure, an example of how each of those would look. And it makes it a lot easier for advisors to stand on the shoulders of that content, customize it as they see fit, and then implement it. So many great tools. Well, before we switch gears to some questions we ask all our guests here on the show, do you have any sort of like parting thoughts for advisors, financial advisors who are listening to this podcast regarding the topic of the golden hour? Yeah. You know, I'll share with you a quick story. I know you've had him on your podcast in the past. You know, I won't use his last name here, but you know, Scott and who yep. I'm talking about. And, and I actually opened with a story about Scott where he was having a heart attack, but his symptoms weren't what you classically think of as a heart attack at a Monday morning staff meeting, you know? And long story short, he had basically a numb left arm. Someone had some medical knowledge. That's a sign of a heart attack. Took him to the hospital. And turns out he was having a Widowmaker event. You know, the name, I think, says it all. And the doctor told us because we acted within that two-hour time frame, his life was effectively saved. And... 
were able to stabilize him that day and then give him a treatment in a few days later. And he was going to be just fine. And as we were building this program and we could see there's a golden hour in financial services, I, I went to Scott and I asked him for permission to share that very personal story. And that story actually saved another person's life at a really large presentation I was doing, like 1,400 advisors. And I just get done sharing that opening story. And I see one guy walk out of the room and thought he just didn't like it. But I later got an email two days later that he was admitting himself to the ER because he had that numb left arm. So amazing. First value added program to save a life. But <laughs> anyway, you know, what Scott told me, he said, yeah, absolutely use it. Probably some good will come of it, create some awareness of that symptom and how serious it is. But then he said, you know what? Well, you guys were twisting my arm and he's our boss, right? So how much leverage do you have with your boss? But we're like, you need to go to the hospital. He told me that day that he really wanted to do nothing more than just go back to his office, lie down, close the door. And had he done that without any exaggeration, he would have never gotten back up. And, you know, from my perspective, there's a really strong motivational insight to that, that as advisors, it's tempting for all of us to lie down on this issue. And I think that, you know, if there's a lesson to be drawn from Scott's experience, it's don't lie down on this issue, you know, tackle it now, act within that golden hour time period, preserve those top client relationships because bad markets can be, you know, client dislocation events as we saw in 2008. Wow, powerful story. Well, so these next questions aren't going to be as cool as that story, but we're going to ask them anyway. <laughs> so, okay. well, first of all, given all the resources at your professional disposal and all the financial advisors you've worked with, how has this impacted or influenced how you personally invest? Yeah. So great question. You know, I'm, you know, a consumer of value in financial services as well. And I think a lot of advisors are in an arms race out there to always sort of be upping the ante in terms of value. And I think most do a really good job at that. But what we see is that the communication to the client can sort of fall behind the curve of what advisors are actually doing. So they're delivering more value than they tend to be communicating. And you know, having an awareness of that is one of the most important things that advisors can do to preserve their clientele. That's what those relationship equity conversations are about. And we've seen the importance of that in some of our other dial session programs as well, like Priceless. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so the next question is, in our profession, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure you're performing at a high level? Great question. You know, I think that's a really individual deal. I think everybody's a little bit different. I've always been just a little bit hyper and, you know, what, what I do is cardio every day. I'm right now tracking at the age of 57 to, you know, knock on wood, go 365 straight days without missing a day. So wow. February 2nd was the last time I missed. And um, as I've gotten a little older, you know, it gets, uh, you know, tougher, tougher to stay in shape. And the other thing I've done, and I shared this with a few folks, is this intermittent fasting for me really works. So I've done, you know, the three day fast and almost lost my mind doing that. I think it is beneficial, but what I do is have a 16-hour period where you're not eating whatsoever. It takes your blood sugar level weight down. I went from, I don't know, 205 to 185 in that time frame without really making any other changes. And I'll just share with you one observation. Like if anybody's a football fan and you see that Heisman House commercial with all the great you know NFL players over yep. the years, 
you know, there's one guy that looks incredible relative to all those other world-class athletes, and that's Herschel Walker. And he's lived that his entire life. And take note of it visually when you see that ad next time, how young he looks. And he's a few years older than me as a practicer of that. I don't want to get into any politics or anything like that. Just a lifestyle choice he made. Yeah. Good tips. Stuff, yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. But before we let you go, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on what they should be reading, listening to books, newsletters, podcasts, anything like that? Yeah. You know, there's a really cool book that I like called Giftology. And that makes this idea that what we want to do is give gifts to people that they'll actually use. And, you know, a lot of times what we see is that when a gift is given to an advisor, like, you know, a big fancy clock, and I've got several of these things, and it's got a given firm's name really prominent on the front, people are less likely to use it, keep it on display. But, you know, he makes the point that if we simply give people the gift, they know who gave it to them. They know who it's from. And they'll actually use it more. And when they use it more often, they're reminded of the kindness that you showed them by giving them that gift. And that's just one small lesson from that. It's only like 80, 90 pages long, but you know it's absolutely packed full of really great tactical ideas to build value with the clientele. That's great. That's a great tip. Yeah. Well, Brett, again, it's been a great conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Invesco? Yeah, absolutely. So they could just Google Invesco Global Consulting. You'll see a lot of the work that we're constantly putting out there. We've got the largest consulting operation in the industry, more than 25 people working with advisors. Not only do we spend a lot of money on the research that's proprietary, but we also have an incredible team of field coaches to assist in the implementation of these ideas at scale. So it's to some degree an unprecedented commitment to helping advisors, you know, grow their business in the industry. Hey, Brett, I have one more question for you. So I just kind of thought about this during this interview. So you didn't mention the name David Ogilvy earlier. So I was thinking like, who has had a greater impact on advertising? So I have three different names for you. So first of all, is David Ogilvy, who when I was younger, his book on advertising was sort of the text that you had to read. The second name is Phil Kotler. I throw him out because one of my mentors loved Phil Kotler. And I'm also throwing a bone to Northwestern, where Robin went to school. And then the third name, of course, would be the one that everybody knows, Don Draper. <laughs> so who has had the greatest influence on advertising today? Well, it depends on how you look at impact. Is it the quality of the ideas or is it the reach of the communication? And, you know, no offense to anyone else from Northwestern or anywhere else, but uh, for me, Don Draper is but the, uh, <laughs> the greatest communicator at scale. There we go. I figured he had a strong chance of winning that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, I really appreciate your time today. This is really great. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the, the opportunity to speak with both of you. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. 
If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.